Welcome to the Five Questions podcast from Astronomy Magazine. I'm Dave Eicher, Editor-in-Chief of Astronomy. Every few weeks, I'll share the thoughts and research of the world's greatest astronomers, astrophysicists, cosmologists, and planetary scientists with you in these unpredictable moments of Q&A. Five Questions for David Helfand is brought to you by Celestron. From your first telescope to precision observatory-grade instruments, Celestron has the perfect telescope to suit your experience level and budget. Find out more at Celestron.com. I'm delighted to have as a guest a distinguished astronomer, David Helfand. David is professor of astronomy at Columbia University in New York and has been chair of the astronomy department there for many years. His research background has involved radio surveys, active galactic nuclei, the origin and evolution of neutron stars and supernova remnants, and the large-scale structure of the universe. David received his Bachelor of Arts from Amherst College and his Ph.D. from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He joined Columbia University in 1977 and has been a member of both the astronomy and physics departments there. He has pushed for innovative teaching techniques that explore new ways to teach all students scientific thinking. In 2005, David became involved with designing a highly innovative new university, Quest University Canada in British Columbia. In 2007, he took a one-semester leave from Columbia to join Quest in its inaugural semester as a visiting tutor. In 2008, he was granted a long-term absence from Columbia to become Quest's president, a position he held until 2015. While there, he developed a course on global warming that offered a dispassionate curriculum based on the scientific facts. He is also a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry and has written A Survival Guide to the Misinformation Age, Scientific Habits of Mind, which is a brilliant book that should be required reading. It's been a great pleasure to know David for some years. David, thanks so much for joining me today. Entirely my pleasure. Well, you're a brilliant guy, and I every time I speak with you, I feel uh, smarter. And it's amazing to me to, to uh, speak with you because you're in the very same building in which my dad worked there in New York during World War II. Oh, is that right? So there's a Pupin little... Labs. Uh, yes, uh, Pupin Labs and it, the early phase of the Manhattan Project there. Interesting. Uh, let me start off right away, David, by asking you a question that goes back a little ways. What was it that first drew you into astronomy long ago? Well, it was indeed long ago, but not quite as long ago as most astronomers my age, because unlike 95% of my colleagues, I had absolutely no interest in astronomy as a kid. <laughs> I didn't know the constellations then, and I still don't. <laughs> uh, didn't grind my own telescope mirror when I was 10 years old. Uh, never read science fiction, still haven't, and I wasn't a Trekkie. <laughs> and in fact, I went off to college, to Amherst, to uh, be a theater major. And I actually can't remember why I took an astronomy course, having had no interest in it. It was probably to fulfill some distribution requirement or something. Uh, and the professor I had was terrible. Hmm. But, <laughs> there's a but, uh, I became fascinated by eclipsing binary stars. Mm -hmm. now, this may sound a real geeky, but 
the point is that you could see this single point of light in the sky, and just by watching it go up and down and up and down as the stars eclipsed each other in their orbit, you could learn the physical radius of the stars, you could learn the mass of the stars, you could learn the structure of the atmosphere, any departure from spherical symmetry, you could get the chemical composition of the stars, you could learn their origin and their fate. And and I thought this was a fascinating amount of information derived from a very modest input of data. And so when it came to the end of the course, and we had to write a paper, I think we were supposed to write a five-page paper, I wrote a 28-page paper on variable stars because I'd become so obsessed with it. Uh, and then, because I was interested, the next fall I took a course uh, at Smith College. The astronomy courses were so underpopulated that they were only offered at one of the five colleges in the valley there. Uh, and this was taught by Waltraud Seiter, who was an absolutely remarkable uh, professor from Germany who would teach one semester every few at Smith. And she made us actually do astronomy. Now, this was way before CCD, so we had to use film, we had to freeze our butts off in a telescope, we had to come and develop it, use blink comparators, all these old-fashioned equipment. And I just thought that was great. And at the end of the term, she said, so you have all been very good, and I think at this time we take you where astronomy is actually done. And she pulled eight, there were eight of us in the class, she pulled eight plane tickets out of her pocket to Arizona. Oh my gosh. And it was used to be before global warming, too, so it was really cold in western Massachusetts in the winter. <laughs> and we had January, uh, we had 10 days in Arizona where we visited all the observatories, went up in the daytime, went up at night, got to talk to the astronomers. And I thought this was just terrific, and it was warm, too. <laughs> and on the last night, uh, we were on our way out to Kitt Peak again uh, with Bart Bach. And I was in the back of the car, he was driving. And he said, so, is anyone here considering becoming a professional astronomer? And I said, yeah, I'm sort of considering this now. You know, this has been pretty good. And he said, okay, so suppose you're called to testify before Congress, which is ironic because I was recently president of the AAF and did have to testify before Congress. Mm. Uh, he said, suppose you have to do that and, and justify why we spend public money on this basically useless uh, occupation. So this was during the Apollo period, and I started off on all the technological spin-offs, you know, micro microcomputers and dried orange juice and all the great stuff that came out of the space <laughs> program. And he said, no, he said, no, you shouldn't do that. The technical spin-offs may come or they may not, but the reason we do this is the same reason we support symphony orchestras and opera companies and poets, because it distinguishes us as human. Mm -hmm. And I thought, ooh, I like that motivation. Mm -hmm. I became an astronomer in the backseat of that car that night. Mm, I did not know you had the connection to Bart Bach like that. That's amazing. Mm, what a guy he was. But it was an important uh, moment for my life. Yes. Mm. Well, that's fantastic. Well, you've been associated with Columbia for 41 years and chair of its astronomy department for much of that time. Can you describe what's the astronomy curriculum and, and the experience in astronomy for students like at such a prestigious and important university? Well, it certainly evolved over the 41 years that I've been here. <laughs> um, and I think it's evolved in a way that, that more of higher education should evolve. You know, throughout most of human history, information has been limited, difficult to access, and expensive. I mean, picture the medieval scribe copying Aristotle by candlelight, and after a year he puts the book in the monastic library where no one else had ac access to it, right? That's, that's limited information 
expensive and difficult to access. Mm -hmm. But now, of course, we live in the exact opposite situation. Everybody carries around in their pocket access to three billion web pages with basically the whole store of human knowledge on them. And so what education needs to become is about the process of asking good questions, not about the answers that you regurgitate because you memorize them and then spit them back when the professor asks for them. Mm. So our courses are really evolving more towards skills-based courses than content-based courses. Now, of course, there's some content. Students have to take a lot of physics and math, uh, and they take courses about what we know in astronomy. But, for example, we have a class in astrostatistics where the latest in machine learning tools and things like that are applied to extract information from data. We have a class called Modeling the Universe in which people do numerical simulations of the early universe or star formation or galaxy formation. And it's very hands-on and, and lab-like. And then we have an observing class, which, you know, New York City is not the ideal observing location for optical <laughs> astronomy, at least. Uh, and so during spring break, they go to our telescopes on Kitt Peak in Arizona for an entire week and get to really observe with real professional telescopes. And so it's, it's more emphasizing the skills they will need, either if they want to become professional astronomers or if they want to go into management consulting. You know, if you know machine learning really well, that could be really valuable these days. About half of our undergraduates go on to graduate school to get PhDs, and the other half go off and do a huge variety of other things. But it's fair, probably, that they come away from that being a scientific thinker, if not a scientist. Exactly. And as you and I both know, we need more of that in the world these days. Oh, boy. Yeah, a whole lot more. Um, you've had a very, very interesting, uh, I don't know if I should call it properly an interlude, but a, a period in your career that is very interesting and very unusual. Can you talk a little bit about your association and your presidency at Quest University and, and a little bit about that institution and what led to that experience in your life? Well, when I got to Columbia in the late 70s, I was delighted to see that the college had not abandoned, as most major U.S. universities had, their general education requirements. Columbia's had this core curriculum that celebrates its 100th anniversary uh, next year, actually, and they'd maintained that through the upheaval of the 1960s and still required every student in the first year and every student in the second year to take a series of courses where they would all read the same book the same night and discuss it the next day in a 20-student seminar. And I thought this was absolutely terrific, except I was simultaneously appalled that these seven courses making up the, quote, intellectual coat of arms of the university uh, consisted of seven humanities courses, zero math courses, zero science courses, zero social science courses. Mm. And that didn't seem to me quite like a complete coat of arms for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. So being young and naive, I said, okay, I'll just make up some math and science courses that everybody can take, and then we'll have a real core curriculum. <laughs> so 27 years later, I succeeded in adding one semester <laughs> to this, <laughs> this core curriculum. So now there are eight courses, the seven humanities courses that haven't changed since the 1930s, uh, and my science course. And the year that I did that, uh, which is 2004-2005, in summer of 2005, I got a call, cold call, from someone I didn't know but probably should have, David Strangway, who had, among other things in his career, been in charge of the moon rocks brought back by the Apollo astronauts because mm. he was a geophysicist. But he was a Canadian geophysicist, so he went back to Canada and was the president of the University of Toronto and president of the University of British Columbia. And as his sort of retirement project, he decided he wanted to bring private education, because there are no private schools in Canada, and the liberal arts 
education that we so celebrate in the U.S. to Canada because there's not really any liberal arts schools either. And so he decided that he wanted to design from scratch a new university in British Columbia. And he called me up and he said, David, we're, I've heard what you've done at Columbia, integrating science into this liberal arts curriculum. We're starting a brand new university from scratch, and I want you to come out and tell us about it. So I did the obvious calculation that in 27 more years I'd be dead, so I never had another course to Columbia's curriculum, <laughs> since that was the relevant timescale. Uh, so I said, sure, I'm coming out in a couple months to give a Columbia alumni talk in Seattle. Let me come up then. He said, great, come up. And so I went for one day. That was my total commitment. Uh, and then a few months later, he called me up again, and he said, David, I've got 10 university presidents from all over the world. They're coming to Vancouver to see what we're doing. I want you to come out and present our science program. And I said, what is this, our science program? It's not my science program, it's your <laughs> science program. And he said, no, no, just come and do what you did last time. It was really great. It was really great. So I went out there for three days that time, and I sort of got sucked in because the idea of starting with a completely blank piece of paper and saying, how would I design a university in today's information environment for today's students, digital mm. natives immersed in a culture that celebrates multitasking. And I had long been a student of the way universities work and don't work and thought, what a neat idea to start from scratch. And so I went several more times and then I got a little nervous because they were talking about what was going to be in each of the courses they were going to offer. And I said, guys, you know, this is not second grade. You can't give lesson plans to university faculty. You need to hire some faculty uh, if you're going to plan the curriculum at this level of detail. And they said, oh, well, we advertise for faculty. And I said, oh, good. What happened? They said, we got 750 applications. Mm. And I said, that's fantastic. Where are they? They said, oh, they're in the pile of boxes over there. Said, Let's <laughs> open the boxes. <laughs> so we did and found a bunch of wonderful people frustrated with the current system and anxious to try something new, mm -hmm. and indeed picked out five, three mid-career people at liberal arts colleges in the U.S., and a couple of younger people who were scientists. And we thought maybe two of them would be crazy enough to accept a job at a university that didn't exist. <laughs> um, but in fact, all five of them immediately said yes. Mm. So then I had colleagues, and for the next 16, 18 months, uh, we went about planning a university. Mm. and a curriculum and a delivery method and a philosophy and an administrative structure and the campus buildings and everything. Uh, we spent a week debating the shape of the tables that were going to be in the seminar rooms because this is an all-seminar uh, institution. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the summer of 2007, when we were about to open, I just couldn't resist both seeing what kind of students would come to a university that had never granted a degree uh, <laughs> and also uh, what how this theoretical curriculum we'd come up with, which was pretty radically different, was going to work in practice. And so I took that one semester leave and went there, and it was just a transformational experience. So the following summer, I went back to help out, and there were some various financial and other kinds of problems, but the model was just a spectacular success. And then I suddenly found myself in September as president of the university wow. and uh, built it from 73 students in our first year and seven faculty to uh, 750 students and 55 faculty, which is what the design for the campus as it exists now was. Amazing. And uh, mm. finished in 2015 because it was about to transition from creation to management, and creation's more fun than management. So. Well, and I was going to say, it must have been an incredibly satisfying creative process to have sort of that blank sheet and intellectually craft something like that. It must have been like sort of dipping out onto another planet intellectually for a while. 
Yeah, I've become uh, addicted to it. So now I'm working on two new universities in the UK is that and right? consulting consulting on one in Saigon. <laughs> is that, that's amazing, David. Wow. Yeah, there's a, there's a, this is interesting because I'm not an engineer, but this is going to be an engineering university in, in uh, Hereford in the UK, the uh. and we're designing it just like Quest, with all the good aspects of Quest, and uh, but an engineering curriculum, not a liberal arts curriculum, so it's, it's got its own challenges, but uh, yeah, it's, it's really fun. Oh, that's an incredible story. And, and so you're still associated with them to, to a degree. Uh, not really. I haven't been out there since I came back here two and a half years ago. Gotcha. Um, okay. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm really an, an East Coast person, so part of my desire to get back to New York was to get back to New York. Sure. It, um, once a New Yorker, always a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what my wife said. <laughs> I won't go anywhere else. <laughs> but it's still, it's still, uh, I still keep in touch, of course, and uh, they're doing very well. And a lot of other places are starting to mimic what we do. As I say, there's some existing universities that adopted some of the things that we do, and then there's several new universities I know about that are going to adopt that as well. In fact, the one in Vietnam, which is actually funded by the Fulbright Foundation, um, took two of my best faculty from Quest as the provost and dean of the faculty, and they're uh, working on it right now. They're going to open in 2020, I think. That's an incredible story and unique story. I've never heard anything like it. Quite amazing. I, I do know why people don't start universities all the time, though, because it's hard. It's hard. I, yeah, you beat me to incredibly hard. It must be and complex as a challenge. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about astronomy. Your your research interests, they've centered on, on a number of things, on, on something that's close to my heart, active galactic nuclei, on the large-scale structure of the universe, the origin and evolution of neutron stars, supernova remnants, can you describe what got you interested in some of these areas of research in astrophysics that you've done, and why do you find those illuminating and exciting, and what have you learned from them? Well, I guess, like my original uh, calling to astronomy, it wasn't a very linear, uh, well-planned-out or well-thought-out path. <laughs> uh, I uh, it, it, it begins with the... Uh, draft number I was assigned by the lottery in 1969 when they pulled numbers out of the hat to decide who was going to Vietnam and who mm -hmm. was not. And uh, I had three roommates, and their numbers were all over 300, uh, and my number was 12. Oh, boy. <laughs> so this was not good. But fortunately, Amherst and Yale were the only two schools that had approved five-year undergraduate degrees, because as long as you were an undergraduate degree, you know, getting a degree, you wouldn't, you're exempt. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I thought, well, putting it off another year is good, so I went for this five-year program. Mm -hmm. And I spent one of the years, uh, the University of Massachusetts down the road had just recruited some faculty from Harvard, and they were building a whole bunch, a whole field full of mini Arecibo radio telescopes mm -hmm. to study the pulsars that had only recently been discovered. Mm -hmm. And so I spent my year climbing telephone poles and stringing chicken wire and tweaking electronics to build this telescope and then observe with it. Mm. And then my senior year, I got myself declared an independent scholar, which means I didn't have to do very much. So I just kept... That's like <laughs> minister, minister without portfolio, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> so I just kept... Uh, I took a few graduate classes at UMass, and I also kept observing. I was, I was basically the only observer at this point. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I was sort of two years into a PhD by the time I graduated, and the draft disappeared the year I graduated, so it was all good. Mm. And uh, I therefore stayed there and worked with Joe Taylor, who won the Nobel Prize in 1993 for the discovery of the 
binary pulsar, mm -hmm. demonstration of gravitational waves. So he was a wonderful person to work with. Uh, and then in those days, I think it was fairly common that people stuck with what they did for their thesis. So low-frequency radio astronomers kept doing low-frequency radio astronomy. <laughs> and I had a couple options to do that, but I also had the opportunity to come here to Columbia to work on Einstein Observatory, the first X-ray telescope uh, in space. Yes. And I thought, gee, I may never get another chance to change fields. And so <laughs> I came to Columbia uh, to work on Einstein, which launched the following year. And it was a great opportunity because I really was trained as an astronomer, and all the people working on Einstein were physicists. Mm. And so they built a spectacular telescope to reflect X-rays, not easy. Uh, instruments to, to record the X-rays, not easy. But of course, they didn't know what to look at <laughs> because they weren't astronomers. <laughs> you were much in need <laughs> yes. as the astronomer. <laughs> So I spent a lot of time planning observations, and that got me into all kinds of different fields because everything we looked at, we detected in x-rays. It was just amazing from nearby you know, M stars to the most distant quasars. Mm -hmm. And then around that time, just when I came to Columbia, the VLA has, was just turning on. Mm -hmm. And I, for about three weeks, I held the record for the faintest radio source ever detected <laughs> because as they were adding telescopes to the VLA, I think we had about eight of them when I first went out there. And, you know, a few weeks later, they had 12 of them so they could detect something fainter. But for a few weeks, I had the most radio source detected. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I started using the VLA a lot uh, and, again, looking for looking at supernova remnants and trying to find the pulsars inside them, the neutron stars inside them. Yeah. And uh, so I got really into the VLA for a long time. And then around 1990-something, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey was being planned and I've always had an attraction for surveys. I mean, because, you know, where do you discover something you completely did not expect except mm -hmm. in surveys, right? Mm -hmm. And so this, I was very interested in planning the Sloan survey, and it occurred to me one day, well, why don't we use the VLA and just do the whole sky? Mm. <laughs> now, this was not a popular idea because <laughs> radio astronomers have tended in the past of the history of the subject to build sort of special purpose telescopes for surveys and then really sensitive telescopes to study individual objects. And so no one had ever conceived of the VLA as a survey instrument. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's a very, very powerful instrument. And so we proposed in 1993, I think it was, yes, it was the 50th anniversary of Grote Reber's first detection of radio waves from the Milky Way. <laughs> um, uh, we proposed to do a radio sky survey of 10,000 square degrees that would match the Sloan Digital Sky Survey footprint. And we got lots of resistance, but we were very stubborn. And so <laughs> over the next 15 years or so, they they eked out the time. Um, we covered the entire Sloan Digital Sky Survey footprint, wow. detected about a million radio sources, uh, 95, 96% of which were AGN. Mm -hmm. So that could mean the AGN. And then you've got the whole sky, so the large-scale structure. I had a couple of really bright graduate students who were much smarter than I am, uh, and they... Uh, they did some really interesting stuff on large-scale structure. Mm. And so it's just sort of stumbling into things, <laughs> coming along with new instruments. You know, we really are an observational subject still that's driven by advances in, in the techniques that we use. And uh, so I just look out for new techniques and jump on them when they come by. But what an amazing and interesting natural progression to lead you into all those areas through the technology. That That's fascinating. Uh, group of interlaced subjects there. 
You've also been very active as a skeptic. You, as I mentioned, you've served as a fellow on the on the committee for skeptical inquiry. You continue to do that. Your book, A Survival Guide to the Misinformation Age, answers my question. Um, but let me ask: What can skeptical thinking scientists do to help the population at large in an era when we're awash in misinformation and crazy leadership like we've never? had before we we need david hell fans everywhere talking sense here so so what can uh, uh very informed very smart skeptics and scientific thinkers like yourself um do to uh sort of blow away some of that misinformation that seems to be surrounding us now yeah, it's a problem I think a lot about because you're right. Uh, we live in perilous times. When my darker moments, I say we're just on our way back to the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, I there's a couple things that I've learned recently that that work at some level. Nothing works with everybody, but one thing I heard in a talk by Bill Press a couple years mm-hmm. ago at an American Astronomical Society meeting. Bill Press was an astrophysicist at Harvard for a long time, but then he took over the head of science at uh, Los Alamos and turned himself into a biologist. So now he's a computational biologist at the University of Texas. Mm-hmm. And he gave a very interesting talk on how to convince a skeptical public. And he said, you know, there's in- important things about science. There's two important things. There's the fact discovery machine. You know, we've, we've, we've honed a technique to discover things about the material world now that's really incredibly powerful. And then there's a set of values you know, logical thinking, relying on evidence, falsifiability, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. He said, and when both of those are extremely important to someone who's a scientist, but to someone who's not a scientist, people don't like you telling them what their values should be. Mm -hmm. They can be interested by facts and discoveries and new ideas, but they don't want to be told how they should rank their values. Mm -hmm. And he said, we need to be a little more careful about separating the fact discovery machine from the value system that we're trying to impose on everybody else because everybody else is not going to share that set of values. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really wise advice. So I give a lot of popular, a lot of public talks. I hope they're popular. <laughs> they're, they're public <laughs> talks anyway. uh, on astronomy, of course, but I give a, a number of talks on climate change as well. Mm-hmm. And that's one of these hot button issues, of course. And what I do is try to be extremely careful. Every single slide, every graph, every number is labeled as a fact, as physics, as a feedback loop, uh, as an example of foreshadowing. But the facts are very carefully defined. A Mm -hmm. fact is a measurement of a physical property of the material world made with the best possible equipment with an uncertainty associated with it and subject to skeptical review and preferably replication. And, And if you can convince people to say, okay, you know, I'm not going to agree on the policy you're going to come up with. I'm not going to agree on the conclusions you come up with, the predictions you come up with, but your models say, but I'll agree on the facts. At least you have a place to start. And so that's what I do. And as a consequence, I've been asked to give talks to some pretty conservative, right-wing, whatever you want to say, audiences, because people recognize that, all right, at least this is reasonable. We can talk about the facts. We'll leave aside the politics and the passions and mm-hmm. things like that. So that's that's what I've been trying to do. Now, if you have people like Scott Pruitt who doesn't accept facts, then you're just in big trouble. And sure. I think only political action solves that problem. But as a scientist, I think being true to the facts and being careful and not overstating what you know, 
uh, most of my talks, whether it's about the universe or climate or anything else, is what we know and what we don't know. Mm-hmm. It's important to represent to people that we don't know a lot. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we don't know what 96% of the universe is made of, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, that provides us some job security, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the point is that coming across as knowing everything or having the system that will know everything uh, is a real turnoff to people and doesn't help them win, win them over to your side. Mm-hmm. Well, words of wisdom in, in a very perilous time, and, and uh, I wish you well and, and let us know here at the magazine what we can do ever to help because we need to get uh, the voices of the David Hell fans of the world um, out there in every way we can. Um, and it's been a real pleasure to have you uh, in this uh, podcast interview, David. It's great, great joy every time I talk to you. You're a brilliant person, very wise person as well, and that's a combination that doesn't exist even in every smart person. So um, you bring a lot to science, and I hope you keep going for a long, long, long time, and everything you've done at Columbia is, is fantastic. So thanks for having uh, joined me today. And uh, I, I want to remind people, look up David's book, which is sensational, especially at this crossroads point in time, A Survival Guide to the Misinformation Age. It's really a great book, really should be read by everyone to have a very clear, cogent idea of how to process this um, wash of information that's coming over all of us these days. So thanks again, David. It's, it's really a pleasure to have you. I hope you've enjoyed this. And I wish you uh, the best of luck with everything that you're doing. Well, thank you very much. It's certainly been my pleasure, and I hope all your listeners enjoy these podcasts. Thanks, David.